0: Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jason Betts from Herbert Smith Freehills, and thank you for and welcome to our corporate symposium session today. This is the third of three sessions that Herbert Smith Freehills has run in its corporate symposium, focusing on consumer facing businesses and the risks and exposures that are arising for them in a very turbulent and difficult legal and regulatory environment. Uh, Today's session uh, will be recorded and we will also have uh, a a question and answer box that's available to our audience and I'd encourage everyone to please consider sending us through some questions and we'll make sure that they're addressed if time permits during the discourse of our discussion. This is a, a session that will focus on class action risk for consumer facing businesses. I may be a class member myself at the moment because my building's being worked on to remove combustible cladding. I'm sorry about the background. There's not much I can do about the noise, but the good news is I will be shutting up soon uh, to let our esteemed uh, panelists do most of the heavy lifting. Our focus on class actions is timely. Maybe it's always timely in the current market in which class action developments are happening so rapidly. We are seeing a market that is uh, emblematic of a very sophisticated class action and funding uh, environment in Australia and our jurisprudence and our practice is moving very quickly Uh, we have had a we're having about a rate of one class action filed every every week in Australia over the last four years which is two and a half times greater than the rate of filings we've experienced historically over the 30 years of class actions in Australia we're also seeing that's meaningful uh, growth by no means are we at the levels of the United States of America but by global standards we are a sophisticated jurisdiction and that has implications for Australian businesses and for Australian consumers. We've also had a period of great change legislatively and regulatorily. so for example group costs orders or contingency fees have been introduced into the Victorian Supreme Court and Ruth will address that shortly and I'll introduce our panellists momentarily and we've also had changes Uh, meaningful changes for the third-party regulation environment in Australia. So this is a time of great change and a perfect time to bring in some heavy hitters who can deal with these topics for us today in in our discussion. So I'd like to introduce them, uh, although they need no introduction. You will hopefully be able to see Gavin Beardsall. Gavin's from Omni Bridgeway. Omni Bridgeway is um, the leading uh, third-party funder of uh, litigation in in the world. Uh, I believe the first listed litigation funder in in the world and they fund a range of class action uh, exposures in our market. Gavin's an investment manager manager based in Sydney and he's responsible for uh, uh, funding opportunities in Australia and New Zealand and he's a deeply experienced practitioner and and funder in, in his own right. We also have Julian Schimmel, I know Julian well litigated against him over many years. Julian's from Morris Blackburn. Morris Blackburn uh, is a or the leading uh, class action plaintiff firm in the Australian market and and certainly Morris Blackburn's been responsible for the largest uh, class actions that um, uh, have been progressed through the Australian legal system. Julian himself has a focus across a wide variety of the species of class actions, but a particular focus um, over these considerable years of experience on product liability and consumer claims. And uh, last but certainly not least, Ruth Overington from our Melbourne office. Ruth's one of Herbert Smith Freehill's most uh, accomplished and experienced class-action lawyers, uh, as with our Herbert Smith Freehill's team, mostly on the defence side of those claims. Ruth's specialisms range across lots of different uh, sectors of the economy. She's deeply involved in defending claims in the financial sector but her experience also spans product liability claims as well and so we really couldn't have a better panel to discuss the changing class action environment in this country and I'm very grateful for them for investing their time with us today. So enough from me, let's start the discussion and it might be convenient Ruth if, if I would be able to throw to you first and talk to us a little bit about um, at a general level, the class action environment that we're facing, but also what the interface between that development, that phenomenon is with um, consumer facing businesses in, in the short and medium term in Australia.
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jason. Um, so, the class actions are really, when we talk about class actions, it's a procedure that's used to efficiently deal with lots of claims that have sort of similar features of some kind. And so, consumer businesses, particularly large consumer-facing businesses, there's often some features about those businesses that make them the sort of uh, business that could be exposed to class action risk. Firstly, if you've got a large number of customers, um, you may have a large number of potential claimants if something goes wrong. So scale is an element that that sort of makes them um, exposed, I guess, to class action risk. The second issue is there's likely some kind of uniformity in some way in terms of the the manner in which a product is distributed or the features of a product or something that's um, sold to consumers in a way that can lead to, if something goes wrong, a common question or something that means that there's efficiency in dealing with lots of customer claims through the class action mechanism. So Those sorts of aspects of consumer facing businesses, particularly large ones, do make them exposed to this class action risk that that we talk about. You don't need customer sort of consent, if you like, for a class action to be commenced. The way our regime works, it's an opt out regime, which means that one customer could initiate a class action on behalf of all customers who satisfy a particular group definition, so they have a particular feature about them that is common to to other customers. So so for that reason, these sorts of consumer-facing businesses are the sorts of of businesses that if something goes wrong, could attract class action activity. Obviously, also, if the business is listed, that's another, another sort of reason why they might be exposed to class action risk. Listed businesses um, are potentially the subject of shareholder claims where there's an allegation that information was not provided to the, the market in a timely manner. Um, so, here in Australia, there's a few reasons why class actions, um, particularly for the consumer facing businesses, are a very real exposure at the moment and probably in the short to medium term. Um, firstly, there's a lot of litigation funding around to fund class actions. The market has grown significantly in recent years. We've got um, overseas funders who are now operating in the Australian market together with Australian domestic funders. Um, Some of the UK in particular, one of the big UK funders has now sort of expanded its operations in Australia, given the the growth that um, we've seen in class actions in this market. first point is we've got more funding available in the Australian market to fund Australian class actions and secondly as Jason mentioned at the start in Victoria last year the Victorian Parliament passed legislation which for the first time opened up the possibility that we could have contingency fee based funded class actions in Victoria um, which, which would be a, a sort of a first for the Australian jurisdiction What that means is that rather than a law firm being um, paid, if you like, by um, fees that are charged on an hourly rate, they would instead have an arrangement whereby um, their fees would be calculated as a percentage of any damages that get awarded in the event that the class action resulted in a payment to group members. So that sort of traditional contingency fee arrangement. Now they're called group costs orders and there's a few other elements to it. But one of the main features is that effectively it's another way of funding class actions. So you've got that development together with the um, influx of of funders, particularly from overseas, which means that again we've got more funding around. Um, just in Victoria, the um, there's been a sort of correlation, if you like, between introduction of that legislation last year and the increase in class actions we've seen now commenced in Victoria in the last 12 months there has been 20 class actions commenced in the Victorian Supreme Court that's up from an average of between five and seven class actions per year that we'd seen in the previous three years so material increase in the number of class actions filed in this jurisdiction which sort of coincides with the introduction of this new potential funding um, Uh, option so um, I guess though uh, sort of operating against that slightly is the fact that there have been some new changes in this the shareholder class action space so we've seen some recent changes in the continuous disclosure laws which um, arguably make it uh, harder for a shareholder class action to be pursued there's a a new sort of fault element that's been introduced Um, but broadly I think the sort of main takeaway is that for consumer-facing businesses, for the reasons I've I've mentioned, are, you know, it's a very real exposure to this class action risk that they face. And I think that's something that will remain a, a feature that that's not going to go away in the short to medium term. Um, so that's probably the, I think, the key um, points to to raise on that that issue that you've you've asked about, Jason.
0: Thanks, Ruth. It's a nice way to land the introductory discussion because you're exposing the relationship, and I certainly don't say this pejoratively, between the important question of how one finances a class action and the viability of the regime. Because over many years, we did not have a fully functioning class action regime in Australia because the costs of prosecuting and defending them were prohibitive. And so... Uh, Gavin, it's a nice way to swing, I think, the camera around to you to talk a little bit. There's a lot to unpack within the funding market, and I do want to get to the change in regulation, which you and Julian will talk to shortly first. But just stepping back for the audience for a minute, and it's a sophisticated audience, but I think it's always useful to remind ourselves of how the funding market actually operates because it is one of the most sophisticated funding markets in the world. We're a small market, but we're a deeply developed one when it comes to third party litigation funding. And just turning to you and maybe you could introduce the audience to some of the criteria and approaches that funders adopt in considering and pursuing what I'll call class action opportunities, particularly those that deal with the consumer space.
2: Thanks Jason. Yes well I've been at Omni Bridgeway now about three and a half years having spent 25 years in private legal practice and I I can say that the we have a due diligence process which is rigorous and breaking that down so my role as an investment manager and my colleagues around the world um, we have a we undergo due diligence working with lawyers or opportunities to us or opportunities that we've identified for ourselves Um, but what overrides all of it Jason is that we at Omni Bridgeway and I can't speak for other funders we only fund claims that have good prospects of success in order to reach that conclusion and get approval from our investment committee requires some thorough due diligence And, and in that due diligence process We we focus on some key. We look at everything, but we focus on some key things like uh, the merits of the proposed claim and the value, the quantum. Uh, Ruth talked about the mechanism of class action, bringing collective claims. So we look at an estimated quantum for the the class of claims to be brought. And something I think we're going to look at later is uh, we look at recoverability. What's the financial capacity of proposed defendant or defendants to meet any judgment or award but there's three key things that we look at but we also look at other factors such as the proposed legal team strengths and weaknesses uh, which jurisdiction and now with the introduction of uh, group cost orders that's a another important feature of our uh, decision making process And we also look at the structure of the proposed class action, whether it be open class on behalf of everybody or a closed class on behalf of only those who uh, sign up. And once we've completed that due diligence process, then I and my colleagues, if we conclude that the proposed claim has a good prospect, at least a good prospect of success, then it goes up to our investment committee Um, It's like the Spanish Inquisition, Jason, it can last many hours but ultimately if you come out the other side with four yes votes, um, we vote by unanimity, then that's the green light to funding and it has been said to to me from uh, when I was in private legal practice on the, the other side for defendants and their insurers that A place funded by only Bridgeway does at least say to um, the defendant that it's been through thorough due diligence and we we actually reject approximately 95% of all funding applications that we, uh, the many thousands of applications we receive, we reject 95% of them. So I hope that gives an an overview of at least our process. is there anything you want me to add to that? It's very helpful,
0: uh, Gavin. What, what, one thing, just as we move from that topic into how funders' uh, environment has changed, particularly recently with the introduction of ch- changes to our regime, a regulatory regime. What one one thing that you might want to offer a brief comment on is is the, without divulging the coke formula obviously a funder is an outsider to the potential claim in, in this and, and, and so I imagine the sources of information they have to draw from a multifactorial. They'll, they'll have relationships within the investment and consumer community they'll have their own legal assessment of the claim they'll they'll have a sense of what the underlying um, mechanics of the quantum calculation will be I, I take it every due diligence process is different are there particular industries of focus or particular types of claims that you see on the horizon as being more of focus I I know it's a much more diverse range of claims that are the focus now than it once
2: was and it's a good question Jason I mean as you know from litigation no two cases are the same but just like a plaintiff law firm or a defendant law firm you'll have a a bank of settled claims for which to draw similarities from um, and whilst no two claims are the same we've got historical information from resolved claims which might inform our due diligence on new claims Um, but the the information comes from a wide variety of sources and the the one of course the one thing that we we don't have at the initial stage is necessarily they're not available in the public domain is a number of documents that would become that would emerge on discovery in the substantive proceeding but and I think securities class actions is a good example of what I'm about to say is that because uh, of the, the historical information we have um it's it's almost like when you're a, a claims handler at an insurance company or, or you're a plaintiff lawyer or a defendant lawyer Um, When you've got some experience under your belt, you're well placed to make an educated assessment of what evidence is likely to emerge down the track. Um, In terms of trends, I think our current portfolio, securities class actions, for example, is a very small percentage of our total global portfolio and we see as emerging areas, for example, um, cyber liability. Um, privacy, um, breach of privacy, building and construction and environmental liability, or, um, which is a reflection also of the, the other claims that we've got in our portfolio.
0: That's a very interesting insight, Kevin. And I, can I switch to and, and also invite Julian to talk about this next topic, which is we saw about a year ago now the a new essentially a new legislative framework for litigation funding schemes and, and associated providers uh, of, of financial services come into effect and the imposition or, or re-imposition depending on how you view the case law of AFSL Australian Financial Services license obligations on funding and also managed the prevent the managed investment scheme provisions of the Corporations Act and I wanted to talk Initially, to you, Gavin. Then, Julian about how has that impacted the way in which class actions are, uh, are constituted uh, and and their economic viability? And has you know has that changed, for example, the traditional book build process? And are there transaction costs associated with it? Would you be able to talk a little bit, both of you, about those changes and what they mean for
2: class actions, particularly in consumer space? I'll, I'll give a brief overview. Jason, conscious not to eat too much time, but the, of course, like any business, we've had to adapt to change and it would be unrealistic to say otherwise, but we have adapted and it's been a year now since the new regime came into force and Omni Bridgeway previously had an Australian financial services license and applied for a new one. we were required to do so we got that in place and we're now set up to conduct litigation funding schemes under the new regime and yes it involves some paperwork and regulatory hurdles but like any business you adapt and to the changes and we've now have I think we're up to six registered schemes under the new regime Uh, ironically only one of which is a Securities class action, and the other five are not securities class actions. But in, in short, the process is involves once our investment committee has voted in favour of funding for a new class action, um, we prepare and register a constitution with ASIC. And once that is registered with ASIC, we then separately prepare a product disclosure statement, which is required for retail investors, and it's I suppose it's a, a change from the old regime is we can't now book build in earnest assuming it's we choose to book build until the product disclosure statement is available for retail investors so in short the process is IC votes yes constitution registered with ASIC, PDS book build that's a, an overview of the new procedure
0: Julian, I want to come to you in a sort of a full-throated way about how plaintiff's law firms approach class action litigation, but just did you have any early comments on the the regulatory regime change and how that might impact the environment generally?
3: Sure. Well, um, so since those those changes that Gavin spoke about came into effect in August last year, um, from our perspective, we've actually not started a class action that involves third-party litigation funding, so we don't have any direct... Um, experience with the with the new uh, regulations which have which have come in. Um, there is though a dimension to this sort of broader um, momentum in relation to regulatory change, which impacts on the other main funding model for class actions, which is lawyers running cases on a conditional fee basis, so on a on a no win no fee basis and. Um, as things stand at the moment, um, no in no fee class actions are exempt from managed investment schemes, uh, regulations under the Corporations Act uh, due to an instrument which ASIC has made to exempt no in no fee class actions from from that regime. Um, Recently though, there's a proposal by ASIC to not remake those instruments when they expire in January 2023. Um, so that would have the effect of potentially um, resulting in no-in, no fee class actions being considered to be a managed investment scheme um, and thereby attracting this sort of huge new layer of, um, of regulation and compliance with the managed investment scheme provisions of the, of the Corporations Act. Um, so, I mean, there's quite significant doubt about whether a no-in-no-fee class action would actually be a managed investment scheme. Um, In those circumstances, the ASIC instruments that have been made in the past have um, sort of provided comfort and certainty to um, class action participants that they would not inadvertently be running a managed investment scheme and noting also that lawyers are, are actually prohibited under the legal profession. Uh, laws from promoting or operating a managed investment scheme. So, so we've had that certainty um, as a result of the ASIC instruments in the past, and it looks like that may uh, end up being removed. Um, that's something obviously we don't agree with, and I think the sort of irony is that the MIS regulations in the Corporations Act are intended to um, protect the interests of investors. Now, the investors in a um, in a uh, litigation scheme. That's considered to be a managed investment scheme are obviously the members of the class in the class action, um, and we think that that extra layer of regulation is actually going to have a really sort of counterproductive effect on the on the interests of class members. That is an interesting angle
0: about the possibly unintended consequences of of including lawyers working on a a, a speculative basis into the new regulatory uh, territory Uh, and we might come back to that as well in another context but it's a nice entry point to Julian maybe and I'll come back to you Gavin because I do want to talk about what's next on the horizon for funders but Julian just, just then asking an equivalent question to what we've explored with Gavin about how plaintiff's law firms approach their, their opportunities to be frank Morris Blackburn is one of the few firms with the uh, capital and therefore optionality I think to do to to do cases without a third-party funder uh, and, and that's no doubt part of the reason that Morris Blackburn remains a leading firm in this space but knowing no fee arrangements no doubt create their own own challenges as well and I wouldn't mind your comment on that and also maybe your comment on, on the opportunities opening in I've got to use the word opportunities that's not necessarily how we would all see it but opportunities emerging in Victoria given the introduction of um, contingency
3: fees in that jurisdiction. Sure well so just to the um, first question uh, I mean the, it's it's actually quite similar to what Gavin uh, talked about before I think I mean there's sort of three main um, criteria that we look at so the first Uh, obviously is the prospects of success the merit of the claim so uh, in a no win no fee class action obviously we're investing a huge amount in the conduct of the class action we're not getting paid unless the class action is successful Uh, along the way we're needing to fork out huge amounts of money for disbursements so for barristers fees expert fees and those sorts of things so um, in those circumstances obviously we want to be pretty comfortable with the prospects of actually winning the case. Um, the second, and I should say as well, these considerations, there's sort of uniform across all types of class actions. Not, um, we don't sort of have different considerations for different types of cases. Um, but so the merit merit on the one hand, um, the second one is uh, recoverability, and we'll come back to that I think in a, in a little while. But, you know, there's not much point in running a, a great case if your clients are not going to get paid at the end of the day. Um, so that's the second one. The third one is what I'd call viability. Um, so, and really this is a, a sort of um, uh, evaluation of the, um, the amount that's at stake. So sort of trying to estimate um, uh, what might be obtained for the class members at the end of the process. And then on the other hand, considering the costs of running the class action. So, you know, our um, our business is putting money into the pockets of people who we say have been affected by corporate misconduct. We don't see any point in running a class action if the whole of the proceeds are going to get eaten up by legal costs. Um, so we undertake that sort of evaluation as well to make sure that the sort of input and effort is commensurate with the um, with the compensation which we're trying to achieve at the end of the day.
0: Julian, is there a just before you go to the second part of the question sorry to interrupt you Flo is there a I'm sure every case is different but is there a time at which or a a factor that would trigger a decision to move down a no win no fee path as opposed to a funded path is it simply an organic thing that depends on the
3: availability of funding or, or how, do, how does that work um, well so look I think the the, the data that's been published um, shows that sort of across the board and when you when you look at all cases, um, uh, you know, including data that's been published by the Australian Law Reform Commission and and by others, that um, the percentage returns to class members in no-in, no-fee cases is generally uh, higher. So I think the um, data that was published by the Australian Law Reform Commission suggests that uh, in a no-in, no-fee case, it's about 80%, whereas in a um, case with third-party funding, it's in the mid-50s. So the percentage returns, you know, across the board, and again, you know, it varies from case to case. But uh, you know, so in those circumstances, we like to uh, offer a no in no fee arrangement when we can. Um, obviously, that does impose a, a burden on us as a firm when we're funding um, these cases. So we can't we can't do all cases on a on a no in no fee on a no win, no fee basis. There, there there has to be a mix of funded and no in no fee cases um, that we're running. Um, as to how that tra- transpires, you, you're right, it really is essentially a sort of organic uh, process. It just sort of depends how um, how the case comes to light, whether it's something we've identified or that's been brought to us. And, um, so, so, yeah.
0: Yeah, and so so just as we turn to contingency fees, one, one interesting observation is that This phenomenon of competing class actions as it's it's emerged seems to be leaning towards all other things being equal and no win, no fee arrangement Might, might be preferred over a funded arrangement in some circumstances because of some of the economic factors you're describing, although the jurisprudence is very early and And I'm sure, Gavin, there'll be many funded cases where you'd say say, that would represent the appropriate vehicle. So that's probably a side issue for another day. But Julian, talking about, and then I want to come to you, Ruth, talking about contingency fees in Victoria, obviously, very few more hotly debated issues than the introduction of contingency fees. And now we don't have a national costs practice in that regard. But uh, I think Ruth was touching upon this, I think in, in the 12 months to, to, to May of, of this year, it's something like 22.5 Victoria versus New South Wales in terms of car sectors being filed. So uh, tell us about the economic incentives there in that developing j- jurisprudence now.
3: Um, well, look, so first, just a little bit of context. So the um, group cost orders as they're known in Victoria or sort of contingency fees or damages based fees uh, as they're otherwise known, um, that they've in fact been recommended in a succession of, uh, of inquiries. So we had the Product Productivity Commission first, then the Victorian Law Reform Commission, the Australian Law Reform Commission most recently in 2018, uh, making recommendations in favour of contingency fees. And uh, I can tell you that um, those bodies did not recommend the introduction of contingency fees because they wanted to sort of gift gratuitous windfall profits to plaintiff law firms. Um, And I think it's wrong to assume that um, the availability of group cost orders will in fact have that effect. So the the reasons why uh, those bodies made recommendations in favour of contingency fees is because they considered that that was in fact in the best interest potentially of Uh, members of class actions Um, and subject to an important safeguard in all the recommendations that have been made that um, contingency fees shouldn't be allowed unless the court permits them in an individual case. Um, So two ways in which uh, the availability of group cost orders uh, might affect the class action landscape Um, And I should say, these aren't the sort of polemical musings of a plaintiff lawyer, they reflect the findings that were made by law reform commission bodies. Um, So, and after the extensive inquiries that they made. So so the two main ways are firstly, um, it might enable plaintiff lawyers to run uh, some cases with a lower claim value, uh, which otherwise wouldn't be viable with third party litigation funding. So that's the first one. And then secondly, there's sort of a broader kind of market impact, which is to increase competition in the funding market generally, um, and putting downward pressure on um, commission rates, uh, you know, and in the interests of members of class actions across the board. So, what what I don't think will happen is that, um, and and the sort of increase in filings in the Victorian Supreme Court, um, notwithstanding it, what I don't think we'll see is a, some huge. At surge in class action filings um, and what I certainly don't think is going to be the case is that group cost orders are going to lead uh, plaintiff lawyers to run cases that have less merit than what than the ones that lawyers and funders are backing at the moment um, so yeah that's how I see things and I mean the, the sort of underlying feature of group cost orders and knowing no fee arrangements you know is that is similar in one sense which is that it's the plaintiff law firm that's on it's uh, on risk in relation to to costs.
0: yes thank you thank you Julian. that's that's helpful context then ruth i'm going to get you to weigh in on this if, if we can obviously we come from this perspective of defending these claims and i i've been vocal in my opposition to contingency fees but it's a reality we have to confront now in victoria uh, and, and Julian's well described the dimensions of that. Could could you offer some comments on what you're seeing, particularly given that you're living in Victoria?
1: Yeah, I am, as my home office attests. Um, yeah, I, th- I think the, and as Julian rightly puts out, there's there's sort of some theories behind the introduction of group cost orders and, you know, contingency fees. And, you, you know, a big part of it is that it's, intended that it will increase access to justice. That's, that's a big part of it. I accept what Julian says about downward pressure on litigation prices, that's also part of it. But a big part of it is access to justice. So what that means is funding class actions that otherwise wouldn't get the tick from you know Gavin's investment committee or the, the usual litigation funding criteria that, that these class actions have to go through and, and come out the other end, before they will be funded so one of the arguments is that there's this body of of class actions that don't make it through the funding test and therefore they're not being they're not being run and those people who have legitimate claims but are not for for particular reasons not financially viable enough to get litigation funding that those claims don't have access to funding and therefore are not getting access to the court system. So one of the arguments is, and as I said, I think a material one in support of this group cost order argument is, those sorts of cases are more likely to be funded if there is a group cost order option available. So the, the sort of, I guess the flip side of that is that you'd think, well, this regime is not meant to be funding cases that are otherwise already being funded. So it's not, it's not there to just add more to the mix of existing cases that are being run. Now, at the moment, we don't yet have a a single decision on when a group cost order will be permitted in Victoria. The legislation was passed last year, but we've yet to see what the court says about how it's gonna interpret the test. And it it is a test that you have to satisfy to get access to group cost orders. Um, And essentially the test is that it's necessary, and in the interest of of, um, justice in the proceeding, for the group costs order to be made. So it's it's not a sort of um, plaintiff firm just says I want a group costs order and it's made you have to you have to uh, sort of meet that that hurdle before the court will exercise its power power to order a group costs order. And as I said, we don't yet know how the court's going to interpret that requirement, but um, you know on one view you might say well if if there are other sources of funding the group costs order may not be Necessary, but those are the sorts of issues that are, are yet to be sort of um, fully ventilated in a way that we get clarity about how this how this particular power is going to be exercised by the courts. Um, so I think there are there's still a lot to play out. Unfortunately, um, although the legislation's been in for a year, we're still a long way away from knowing how it's going to impact on the mix of class actions that get commenced. Um, you know whether it's more of the same or whether we are seeing class actions that otherwise wouldn't have been pursued because, for example, there's too few group members or they're not worth enough or whatever it might be. All of that is yet to really play out um, in a way that we'll be able to fully understand.
0: Just speaking just speaking of these economic incentives um, and, and it's related but separate, can I just get a quick one on, on this aspect because it's very relevant to our client base. Um, uh which is this uh the the available the as everyone would probably agree although we might disagree on the reasons the insurance industry and and that part of the industry that supports um and responds to class action risk has been heavily dislocated by the 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 in particular shareholder class action litigation in in Australia and re- retention levels and premiums have been at levels that, that we haven't seen before um, I'm interested from Gavin and Julian to get your perspective on how how much of an impact or, or, or factor the existence, potential existence of responsive insurance is to your decisions to pursue a case. Um, and, and you don't have to, I know it'll be different for each case, but just
2: generally, where does that fit into your mix? Well, absolutely, Jason. We touched on this earlier. One of the key things we look at and I agree with Julian. You, there's no point, even if a claim is meritorious, pursuing it if there's no compensation for the consumers or other class members at the end of the case. So, of course, we take into account the availability of insurance when we're doing our due diligence, and and similarly, we look at any other publicly available information regarding dif- prospective defendants assets and, and, and revenue. I mean, and that's just the, the reality of it. But what, what I would add to that is to say, um, insurers are sophisticated and they see emerging trends. I referred to some of them earlier. And where risks uh, emerge, insurance follows. And we're seeing a number of new insurance products that are meeting the New risks that companies face um, outside of their typical shareholder class action. Um, and it, it's just the reality is that where those new risks emerge, new insurance products follow. Companies take out those new insurance sees, and then they those insurance sees are taken into account when a funder or a plaintiff law firm is considering a possible class action and it's just that's the reality of the the market we operate in Julian Um, well look
3: Gavin's touched on this already it's not so much a kind of narrow question of insurance but it's a broader question of recoverability generally Um, usually at the time we're thinking about filing a class action we have uh and usually not always but usually we have um no insight into the insurance uh that's that might be responsive to the claim um and my experience generally is that defendants tend to fight pretty hard to avoid disclosing um information about the insurance that that might be available um but yeah you know and as i said earlier obviously we do undertake a process of considering what are the prospects of recovering against the defendant um there have been cases where the um, lack of insurance or the lack of much insurance um, has had an impact on cases. Many years ago, I started a a class action, well, well, almost started a shareholder class action against ABC Learning, um, uh, which had gone into administration. Um, We sought leave uh, from the court as we need to under the Corporations Act to start a class action against the company in administration in that context, we got some information about the insurance uh, position, um, decided not to go through with a claim. So so it does have an impact sometimes, but um, the more important question is that sort of overall uh, prospects of, of recoverability. That's very helpful insight from from you both on
0: that issue. And I, I wanna pivot now, if I can, to talk, move past the commencement of proceedings and talk about, proceedings uh, being resolved. Uh, if I can, I want to come back on multiplicity of proceedings because I can't help myself to get your views, but just in the interest of time, let me move to this. Um, these cases are very large when commenced and we're looking at between two and a half years and four years between commencement and resolution. And I think for consumer claims, it's actually closer to the larger number, but for shareholder claims, it's getting close to the lower, um, both different kinds of consumers. Um, Everyone knows class actions are, are complex and expensive, and with the courts in, in pramata required to settle the, the proceedings, they're different to conventional claims. Uh, could, could I get a view from each of you very briefly on the challenges uh, to resolving proceedings from, from your each, each of your unique perspectives? Perhaps, Gavin, if I could uh, start with you and then move down the list.
2: Thanks, Jason. Well, from a funder's perspective, um, there's a common interest between us and the group members to resolve class actions early um, and that's because yes as you say the class actions are expensive and so the longer a class action goes on the greater the costs incurred by both uh, the class and the defendants and so one of our challenges is to try and get to a mediation sooner rather than later and there seems to be a a sort of general reluctance to mediate until quite late in the piece until and often after both sides have put on their lay and expert evidence and so one of our challenges is to um in the not solely in our interest but in the interest particularly of the class is to try and get to a an earlier mediation uh, maybe after discovery and before evidence is on but in short, well in advance of the trial and not close to it.
3: Julian, do, could I go to you next? Sure. Well, um, I mean, other than the sort of usual bag of tricks that clever defendant lawyers have up their sleeve to make life difficult for us um, hardworking plaintiff lawyers, um, you know, I mean, there's a there's a whole variety of things that that, that make class actions difficult to to resolve. Um, Uh, Just thinking about one sort of topical issue in particular it's this issue about class closure orders. Um, I know that I mean that's sort of um, uh, and and the implications of that in particular for resolving the entire class of people who might be affected. Jason you've been talking for many years about the fact that sort of getting that certainty of resolution is is a critical um, consideration from a defendant's point of view and I think that fact means that it's also sort of the plaintiff's problem as well you're not going to resolve a class action unless there's some kind of um, satisfactory arrangement from the defendant's point of view to, to resolve the whole of the claim and I think in that context, I think one of the issues that is complicating resolution at the moment is the state of play in relation to class closure orders. So we had a judgment from the New South Wales Supreme Court, which um, said that you can't make class closure orders that shut out the rights of people who don't take steps to register a claim in response to a notice that's sent to them effectively to sort of um, you know, summarising that um, Decision. So I think that makes it. I think that throws up some challenges. That is a decision only from the New South Wales Supreme Court. Uh, There's a provision of the Supreme Court Act in Victoria, which means that that's not a problem in Victoria, um, or a class actions in the Victorian Supreme Court. Maybe that's the reason why we're seeing all these class actions filed in the Supreme Court of Victoria. Um, But in any event, I think that you know, in the federal sphere, which is where the majority of class actions are filed you know I think we're going to the federal court's going to want to say something about that jurisprudence and, and ex- express its view about it but um, there is a bit of uncertainty at the moment um, about that consideration which makes it hard to sort of wrap up uh, the, the, the whole of the class.
0: I agreed, and I must say I'm finding the absence of class closure t- t- productive of more time between commencement and resolution, not not less. And, and to Gavin's point, I think the other factor, not for today, is it's not for every defendant, but some defendants, when they're sitting at the negotiation table, would prefer to be able to persuade their opponent of the lack of merits of their position by reference to evidence, and obviously evidence doesn't happen at the early part of the case, it's at the end. So there's there are factors inbuilt within, I think, the class action regime that Mean it, it's slower to resolve, that doesn't mean we should stop trying to make it more cost effective to resolve or, or, or run to trial quicker. Uh, Ruth, I, I, I certainly want your views on um, resolution issues and obstacles, uh, particularly from the defendant's perspective.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I agree with what you've just said, Jason. There, there are some material um, obstacles that, that get in the way. Um, the, the main one, I think, is the quantum of the claim class actions are unique in the sense that when the it, when it's commenced you don't know for what amount like it, it's not like a single piece of litigation where a plaintiff is typically required to particularize their loss so they have to tell you what is the value of their claim when they're commencing the case um so you've got that really um significant piece of information from early on in the proceeding. Class actions are different. Um, As I mentioned at the start that, you know, typically it's an opt out. So you could have a theoretical class. So if you just looked at how many people potentially fall within the group definition, it could be many, many thousands. And yet when when it comes time to actually, you know, down the track, um, if there's a settlement or a trial or a judgment and people actually get to the stage where they need to put their hand up and say, I'm in the group and I want to participate in this class action, it could be a fraction of the theoretical class. So there's often a big difference between the theoretical quantum, if you can work it out, um, and the the realistic quantum that is is truly representative of who are the people in this class action who are actively going to participate in the class action when the time comes for them to do so. And and the the problem with the regime is that time for them to do so is not set in the regime until after the trial so so you can go through all of the steps up to and including the common questions trial and not have group members be required to come forward and identify what the value of their claim is and so that that quantum piece is I think the single biggest hurdle in terms of um, getting a case to the point where you could reasonably settle it quickly. Um, the class closure piece is obviously significant in this in this um, context because the class closure regime, if you can get an order, and as Julian said, there are some real difficulties with getting an order like that, particularly outside Victoria. Um, the That would then at least enable you to sort of require people to put their hand up at an earlier point in time, effectively to register, and then you can get a better sense of quantum. The reason for a defendant as to why quantum is so important is in addition to the merits, the quantum is the second biggest part of working out what a reasonable settlement is. And, you know, for a corporate that's answerable to its shareholders or its owners, you need to be able to say this settlement is reasonable. It's what a good corporate defendant would reasonably do in the circumstances. And similarly, if you've got insurance that you want to hopefully claim upon for the purposes of the class action you need to demonstrate to the insurers that this is a reasonable settlement so you need that that important information before you can take a step to resolve the case in a way that a good corporate citizen would do so I think it's that it's the quantum piece um, that is the the single biggest obstacle I think uh, Jason to, to early settlement
0: yeah I think I think that Exchange between everyone has demonstrated why the class action regime is productive of cases with such such a long tail, because um,
3: all
0: three all three of those obstacles are unique to class action litigation as opposed to conventional proceedings. L- looking at the time, I wanted to move and get everyone's input on on the future, uh, and before I I just open that up to to the, to the audience, if. Um, If you do have any questions, we're not setting the boards on fire here with questions, no doubt, because we've been so comprehensive, but if you do have any questions, please send them through and I'll make sure we address them in the last 10 minutes. Um, The future, uh, about 30% of class actions at the moment are shareholder class actions. And as we know, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the continuous disclosure obligation, obligations under Australian law adjusted. I think the, there is commentary in the media that probably oversimplifies and, in some senses, overstates on both sides what this means. But I did want to maybe starting with you, Julian, just in the context of those 30% of claims, which are shareholder claims, will be against companies who are, in many cases, consumer-facing. You know, could, could you talk a little bit about what the amendments might might mean uh, for shareholder class actions? Is it true that the, this might dampen the ability to bring some of these claims
3: Um, well look I think certainly the intent of the the amendments was to reduce that risk Um, uh, just to sit a little bit on the fence I think it'll take us a little while to work out whether that um, in fact turns out to be the case Um, but just to explain uh, briefly what the ch- what the sort of most important changes are. So in terms of the continuous disclosure obligation, there's a change from a, a purely objective standard which required disclosure of information that a reasonable person would expect to have a material effect on the share price to a, a, a different standard that incorporates a mental element And in particular, that the entity knows, or is reckless or negligent as to whether information would have a material effect on the share price. So it's important that uh, that negligence um, component is included there, which is a more objective standard. Um, uh, But I think we'll need to see how that plays out, and that gives rise to, I think, some potential areas where. Where the amendments may have some um, some impact. So, um, and the other the other important part of the change, I, sh- I should say, is that it, it extends those changes to the um, to, skin- to the continuous disclosure obligation, also to the misleading or deceptive conduct provisions in the Corporations Act. So, in terms of the potential impact, I think uh, one and probably the most concerning aspect from our point of view is that it will probably make it harder to bring shareholder class actions that involve accounting misstatements um, so and again although negligence is included in the in the as one of the components of the me- mental element that you can rely on um, the way that we see it is that the amendments may have the effect that, that the effect that a company will be able to say that it wasn't negligent because it relied on auditors or other advisors. Um, So that's one potential impact. Um, And then sort of relatedly, it means that you may not be able to see the auditors because the auditors weren't involved in a contravention by the company itself, Um, unless perhaps the company misled the auditors um and the sort of difficulties in pursuing the auditors also compounded by the changes to the misleading or deceptive conduct provisions so um so I think that's that that's one of the ways potentially in which the amendments will have an effect I think um it'll probably just sort of going back to what we talked about at the very outset in terms of you know the calculus for considering what types of cases to bring I think it'll sort of really um bring that process into very sharp relief um, for us, uh, to the extent that we're considering knowing no fee shareholder class actions. Um, Just the final aspect of the amendments, I think um, it does have the potential to sort of, um, to give rise to attribution games, if you can call it that, that sort of I know nothing defense, where a company uh, may have information at some level, but will argue that the company itself um was not negligent because the board and other senior executives weren't provided with that information and so it therefore didn't fail to exercise reasonable care um so yeah look I think it, it'll take a little bit of time I think for for us to get a real sense of how um you know what impact the amendments have but you know those are the, some of the potential issues that I think. I wish I had left
0: more time to debate some of these points with you because we could do a whole hour on, on this. Maybe we will, maybe we will in another, at another time. Um, but in, in the few minutes available, Gavin and, and Ruth, maybe Gavin first and then Ruth, uh, just on either on Julian's uh, summary of the uh, continuous disclosure amendments or anything about class actions moving forward in this very complicated and, and changing market, grateful
2: for your few, few minutes of last words. Thanks, Jason. Very briefly. I know I I largely agree with what Julian said about the new securities laws. I'd only add briefly that um, whilst it's no doubt the bar has been raised, um, the laws that apply to listing entities haven't been changed en masse. There are many provisions of the Corporations Act that have not been amended. And from Omni Bridgeway's point of view, I don't think there will be any significant change because as really picking up what I said earlier we unless we assess a claim has got good prospects of success we won't fund it and applying that to securities claims unless there's clear evidence of wrongdoing we, we won't fund them and I expect that approach will uh, continue. Um, I think overall uh, for, for companies the overall the risks notwithstanding all the, the changes to securities laws, the introduction of the new MIS regime to third party funded actions and group cost orders, overall the risks will balance out, as I said earlier. So on the one hand, it might be said that the new securities laws will uh, reduce the risk of some some securities claims, but then there are emerging Areas, trends for liability in other areas, as I said, cyber, privacy, building construction, and um, product liability, and environmental liability. So I think overall, the the class action class actions on Australia across the jurisdictions, whether they're funded, unfunded, they will um, continue in similar numbers.
0: Ruth, I, I'm sorry I didn't leave you much longer, but much time, but grateful for your comment.
1: Yeah, no problem. I think obviously today's session has been about um, informing uh, particularly consumer-facing businesses about the risk. Um, and I think for reasons we've already covered, um, it's clear that that risk is one that, that is real in Australia and will not disappear anytime soon. I think the key sort of advice I would give to consumer-facing businesses is the best defense, we and Jason, and I act for for businesses to defend any of these class actions. The best defense you have is that, you know, you've had the best systems you can put in place. You've had the best processes. Everything is good industry practice. You know, you're essentially doing the best that you can as a corporate. And, you know, that that is the best sort of way to mitigate the risk of class actions, I think is the good corporate, you know, business response to, to all of these sorts of issues.
0: Thank you, Ruth. And Look, I see the time and and, and I just wanted to thank the audience uh, for, for participating, but also to thank Ruth and Julian and, and Gavin. The four of us sit against each other and fiercely compete with each other in class actions, but I think it is always very valuable to understand the motivations and insights of one's opponents, and I'm very grateful for you three devoting your time to today's session. Thank you, and to our audience, thank you. This is the last of our corporate symposiums the session today will be will be published a recording of it will be published on our website as well some material that summarizes the themes very grateful for your support for this event and we hope that you stay safe and, and we'll see you soon